JBS presents the Hampton Synagogue's Author Discussion Series with Rabbi Avraham Bronstein. My name is Glenn Dorskin. Welcome to the Hampton Synagogue. The Hampton Synagogue Author Discussion Series, now in its 27th year, is a cultural highlight of our summer season, both from members of our congregation and our many visitors from across the Hamptons. I am proud to serve as series chair, and it is my great pleasure to share our past season with you, our global congregation, in celebration of Jewish Book Month. So the very opening of the book is a, a few lines from a poem by Yeats. I call to the mysterious one who yet shall walk the wet sands by the edge of the stream and look most like me, being indeed my double, and prove of all imaginable things the most unlike, being my anti-self. That's William Butler Yeats. And then the house on Maryland Road. Actually, there's another little epigraph. I'm just going to be reading other people's words. I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's just a line from a poem by Wallace Stevens uh, called The Rock. It is an illusion that we were ever alive, lived in the houses of mothers, arranged ourselves by our own motions in a freedom of air. I am going back 50 years before the lurid headlines the Hollywood deal, the publishing contract, and the New York Times profile of the role model genius who finished Yale Law School against all odds. Before delusions mistaken for stories and stories mistaken for life. Before the fancy clothes you bought for management consulting and wore into the hospital, the halfway house, and the Gatsby house you guarded with a baseball bat against enemies disguised as friends and family guarded in turn by beloved neighbors. I am going back to the time before you graduated from Yale summa cum laude, which I always thought of as summa cum laude, since you achieved in three years what I failed to accomplish in four, before high school where you ran while I was beaten, and the horror 20 years later when it was my turn to run. I am on a road racing backward out of a tragic sorrow whose circles radiate in all directions. Forgive me. I know there is no road, and it isn't racing backward or forward. I know there is no going back. But here I am on a short street in New Rochelle. There is a green and white colonial house at the top of the hill, and a brown and white Tudor house at the bottom. There are two 10-year-old boys who live in those houses, even now. They're just illusions, but they're also real. And they're where I've got to start. And then the book um, begins, tempted to read yet another epigraph, um, and I will. It's from a letter from Cynthia Ozick, who is a writer who lived in New Rochelle, who was my mother's best friend. So they wrote to each other every day, practically, and they talked to each other every day, and writing loomed large for both me and Michael. And this is, the, the first chapter begins with a line from a letter uh, she sent me. When you were a small boy, the aim of the suitable playmate could not have been more perfectly fulfilled. Across the street was Michael Lauder, the ideal friend, a brilliant peer. And then sort of to follow up on that last word of a brilliant peer, brilliance, because Michael was brilliant, loomed really large in the story. 
this idea of what it meant to be really smart. It was somehow going to save you from everything, or it was just your destiny somehow. So um, this is the little equivalent of that little opening before the third house, the house of law. Second house is the house of psychiatry. And um, I'll just say that when, when Michael, uh, Michael graduated Yale in three years, he then worked for a year at a management consulting firm, Bain, but in the course of that year, he began to show the signs of what was later diagnosed as uh, paranoid schizophrenia. But then, and uh, he spent eight months in a locked ward. But then he was in a halfway house, and at the halfway house, they began to suggest that he would need to work. Maybe um, he could work at Macy's, something small, something slow at the beginning, like working at the checkout counter. So his father took him to Macy's in Manhattan, world's largest department store, and the two of them watched this chaotic scene, and his father said, um, if you, he basically said, you, you know, you're not going to work here, you're going to go to Yale Law School. Because before Michael had had his psychotic break, he'd applied to all the law schools, all the top law schools, and gotten into all of them, and learned he had gotten in while he was on his locked ward, and told his brother to um, reject them all, uh, except for Yale, which he deferred. And so, uh, he then begins Yale Law School straight from the halfway house, which he left er, uh, early, actually. Uh, and this is just a little introduction to that section. When I was young, I had a book called Legends of King David. In the last story, the king has grown old, and God sends the angel of death to retrieve his soul. David is playing his harp so sweetly that the angel of death, instead of collecting his soul, stops to listen. The king understands perfectly well what is happening and walks through his palace playing his beautiful melodies without pause until God, taking pity on his angel, breaks a palace step under David's foot. The king stumbles, the music stops, and the angel of death carries off his soul at last. Nobody told us that being smart would make us sane, successful, and maybe immortal. It went without saying. Just as it went without saying that Michael, plucking the strings of his intelligence, would keep the angel of madness from carrying him away. It went without saying, though Michael said it anyway, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid, which actually meant he was neither. It also went without saying that Macy's would destroy him and Yale Law School would set him free. I believed it. My parents and Michael's parents believed it. So did Guido Calabresi and the professors who became Michael's mentors. So let me ask you, the events in this book culminate in the mid to late 1990s. That was a long time ago. Um, how long have you been mentally writing this story uh, in your mind? And um, what made you decide to um, finally take the time to put it onto paper? Well, I was actually writing it for 10 years, so if I'd have known it was taking that long, um, I, it, it's hard to say how long I was thinking about it, writing it, certainly not writing it, probably avoiding it, which was a way of carrying it around with me. Uh, Michael Kilcary, 25 years ago. I met him 50 years ago. I had, when I was revising the book, I kept changing. I'm going back 40 years, and it was 45 years. And, um, but I, the, the, the reason, the thing that makes it such a hard question to answer is because it isn't as if there was a story waiting for me to tell. 
to be told by me. Um, I didn't know what the story was. I knew something terrible had happened to my childhood best friend and that he had done something terrible. And that reckoning with it was somehow something I just kept putting off until then I wasn't putting it off anymore. And then, because that's how I encounter things, I had begun writing. Why did the writing of the book take 10 years? Most of it is your own experiences. Um, there's a lot of biography in there. Um, can you describe the process of writing it? Yeah, I suppose so. My daughter, who I just took to college, my younger daughter, who's 20, was basically saying, so half my life you were working on the book, uh, which is true. She grew up in, inside of my working on it. Um, I don't know why it took me so long, but I was always on the brink of thinking perhaps I wasn't writing it, or wasn't going to actually finish it or be able to write it. I had to figure out how to tell the story. One of the reasons I like the little opening about going back is because I realized I had to tell it by going back myself. I wasn't looking back. I was going to tell it forward. Looking back, it was always filtered through this tragedy, the front page of the New York Post, Psycho, which is where he wound up, having been just a few years before profiled heroically by the Times. And so I kind of came to realize that everything grew out of my childhood friendship. And so once I did that, and I was back inside of my childhood in that way, I could tell the story forward. And um, that was hard. Yeah, my, my sense even reading the book is that it's really three books in one. Uh, and I think you're kind of describing that, right? On one hand, it's the story of Michael. So it's a biography. It's a narrative about somebody else who happened to have been a very, very close friend of yours and the stories of his life and the events that, that transpired. It's also a memoir, right? It's um, very much about you and yourself growing up and your own experiences and experiencing his story, not from you know, a biography, but his story as it related to your life. And then also there's a lot of journalism in there. You speak about the American, American policy towards mental illness, how that changed over time, how those changes um, kind of played into the context through which you and Michael grew up, um, maybe how they changed policies that affected Michael more directly. And I'm wondering kind of about how those three different books interplay, whether you thought of them as three separate stories and why you felt that to tell the story, you needed to tell all three of those at the same time. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I never thought of them as three separate stories in that once I began writing the book, because the, the key to my being able to write it was to write it like a novel, mm -hmm. uh, which is not to say that I invented things, but to embody everything. So even when I am not present, I'm writing it you may, as if I am present. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it's also the case that People kept telling Michael's story. Michael's story was told by the New York Times, and it was told in a somewhat exaggerated way that almost as if bestowing a favor on him elided some of the difficult aspects of his illness. Hollywood then bought his story. Ron Howard bought uh, Michael's life story, rights to be a Hollywood movie, and he sold a proposal for a memoir that was going to be the basis of the movie. But it's almost as if the Times told his story for him, almost to him, and then Hollywood told him his own story, and he was then expected to write it, which he never did, and in a sense that was bound up with what wound up happening to him. 
So I guess I didn't think of myself telling what Hollywood had seen as this heroic story. The very heroic nature of the story they wanted to tell was in, in a way a falsification. And so I was untelling stories as well as telling them. And that was best done because by just, as I say, going backwards, Michael lived literally across the street from me. He was my best friend. We were very competitive. He was much better at a lot of things than I was. We both had fathers who were professors. And we ju it's just I saw an aspect of myself in him. So when he had his psychotic break, it, it really it, it felt um, it was shattering in a way I was never wholly it took many years to recognize. And also, I always thought, well, he lived on my street. But then again, as I began like researching the book, I realized he lived on everybody's street, or all these people who saw him either emblematically because they'd read about him in the Times and he was a hero to them as living on his street or his professors. And so there were just so many kinds of stories. And then our childhood, I, I want to just address the last thing you said. It was less about my thinking consciously, what were the policies? It was my understanding, my trying to figure out how was it that when Michael became so sick, there was no world to receive him? What had happened to um, the world of asylums, or the world of mental health care, or the care for people with severe mental illness? And in answering that question, I kept getting drawn back again to just the 60s that had just played like music in the background of our childhood, but that actually represented cultural shifts that changed the law, laws that changed policy that in turn influenced the culture. So I had to grapple with all of this world. And it was amazing how central, without my ever having known it, mental illness really has been, especially to the 60s, but in a sense right. to, the whole, to the whole shaping of an aspect of the culture. Understood. Um, in your title, The Best Minds, so who are the best minds? Right, there's a particular point in the story uh, where that term comes up. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. And I'm wondering why out of everything that happened over the course of the narrative, that's the line that you pulled out to be the title. Well, it's interesting. Originally, the book was called No Going Back. The book was called No Going Back. And it's ironic in a way, maybe it's the paradox of writing. The first line of the book is, I am going back. And it's all about the impossibility of going back, but the necessity of my needing to imagine my way back. But also, it was about how you, we're not, to, we're not gonna go back to a time before what's called deinstitutionalization. But without thinking about it or knowing about it, I can't imagine us going forward. But I changed it not long before I turned in the final version. And The Best Minds is a line from Allen Ginsberg's poem, Howl, which was published, I think, in, 19, in 1956. Uh, and it begins, I've seen the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, you know, starving, naked, hysterical. Allen Ginsberg's mother had very severe schizophrenia. He had signed the permission for her to receive a lobotomy, which he never really forgave himself for. And he spent the rest of his poetic life and actual life almost repenting for it. And the form of his repentance was to almost change the culture so that his mother's madness was the norm. And I was very interested because I went to Berkeley for grad school, where Ginsburg had 
worked on the poem, and that just, just to think about what it meant to, to have this iconic poem be about madness. And you're never sure in Ginsburg's poem if they're the best minds who then went mad, or if being mad somehow made them the best minds. And that was part of the confusion of the, of the era. You know, LSD was introduced the same year as antipsychotic drugs, and psychiatrists were distributing both of them. And one was considered mind expanding, and the other, therefore, was kind of mind squelching, even though it was an amazing thing that was supposed to facilitate what's called deinstitutionalization. But the best minds also refers, I think, to this incredible pressure we both felt to be smart, which was, I always thought, a Jewish thing. It was also a post-war thing. It was a meritocracy thing. It was a Sputnik better be able to compete thing. And I can't even do small you know, addition, but um, it was just part of that world. And then it was the world of experts, the world of people who really thought they could reorganize the world. The same people who planned the war in Vietnam and on the back of the same envelope mapped out the war on poverty. Uh, people who had grand idealistic ambitions and deinstitutionalization was like that. Not we will reform these institutions, which were originally created as an act of great compassion, but we will destroy, we will tear them down and replace them with something entirely different, with community mental health centers as opposed to hospitals for people with severe psychiatric illnesses. And so that utopian, tragic, notion that if you that the, that the best and the brightest as they would say could plan the world for people and that Back is what I also wanted to capture. That, that's, that is the tragedy of good intentions. A number of Michael's um, mentors and professors at Yale Law School had clerked in their youth for the judges who had changed the laws of, institutionaliz of, of institutionalization. And so they themselves had participated in the transformation of a landscape without their knowing anything about severe mental illness. And so for them, caring for him, again, seemed like a tremendous act of compassion as it was, but he really couldn't do the work as I never knew until I began to talk to them. And he, but he, he was not told that. And so he assumed that he was uh, able to do it. He was still as brilliant as always. And so that was already opening a space between real world and his perception of it. And that was already his struggle. And so that was a tragedy of good intentions. And I'm thinking back also because, you know, you began with the story of Ginsburg, who, from whom the words, the best minds were taken, right? That story with his mother who was lobotomized, right? That's the strongest possible kind of institutionalization you could possibly imagine. And the kind of the narrative arc of American relationship to mental illness kind of starts from there. And it winds up maybe with Michael as you're telling the story. Yeah, that's actually a great point because John F. Kennedy, who is the person who sort of envisioned community mental health care, the last major piece of legislation he signed before his assassination uh, had been deeply affected by the lobotomy his sister received without anyone knowing it. The father, Joe Kennedy, had uh, summoned Walter Freeman, who had devised, he didn't invent the lobotomy, but he perfected the ice pick lobotomy and literally went around performing them. And uh, Kennedy and his, John F. Kennedy and his sister especially, who, who was um, sort of the architect as well of the plan, were, were really um, in their way also trying to re re recreate a world that would have been accommodating. Um, the, the problem is that 
there were many assumptions made that were not, turned out not to be true, and grand ambitions about preventing mental illness when no one knew how to do that, and curing it, which no one also knew how to do, and how you um, could care for people in, a, in the community uh, wasn't really something anyone thought about. I'm, I'm curious about your experience writing the book. Uh, was there anything over the course of maybe the research or just thinking back or any of the interviews that you did to get some of the backstory? Was there any part of your own recollections that you know, turned out to not be as true as you thought they were? Was there anything that really surprised you? Or were there any things in the story that took on like significance you never really imagined, but you didn't really come upon until you sat down to chart out the narrative arc of your story? Yeah, well, that was, that's also a, a very a good question because I was never sure how large the circle had to be of my inquiry, let's say. And you were talking before about untelling the old stories before you can tell the new ones. Yes. So I'm, I'm wondering maybe what you had to untell that was most surprising to you. Meeting Michael's professors, who were wonderful um, to talk to, was very moving for me because, first of all, I had assumed that his experience was more as he had represented it. And then as the Times had represented it, he wanted to get hired to be a law professor. First, he hadn't told anyone. Then he, as he said to the Times, he came out as a flaming schizophrenic. Um, and although it, that did not get him hired, it did bring him to the attention of Hollywood. But the professors were themselves, in a way, having a reckoning. And, and that's partly, as much as telling a story, it was also just having an encounter with all of these things. And they were open and almost thinking aloud about their own role, their own journey, by the way. They were old enough to have been around, you know, when those, in their early years when they clerked for judges and were changing the laws, it, they saw uh, deinstitutionalization shutting down state mental hospitals as an extension of the civil rights movement. And in a weird way, you saw them thinking, how could I conflate people discriminated against because of the color of their skin with people who are suffering from a severe illness? It serves neither group in a way, but it was simply the operative metaphor almost. And, and, and also they were products of, of, they were Jewish mostly, and they were products of this very intense meritocratic world. Um, and so for them, being smart was enormously important. Their own brilliance mattered a lot to them. It had gotten them out of often very poor childhoods. Uh, and I think that they saw that Michael was in a way like them. And so they were going to be able to bestow the rest of what he might lack on him as a kind of accommodation without really understanding what it meant when he told them that every morning his bed was on fire and his father would call him and talk him through the flames because he was still hallucinating. And what that really might mean for his, as one of his professors said to me, if I'd spent more time, uh, if I'd spent less time thinking what a great place Yale Law School was for accommodating Michael Lauder and more time thinking what his experience might be like, I might have behaved a little differently. So that was a very honest and sort of moving thing to say. And of course, I had all these journals. I mean, I kept journals from a very early age, and I was terrified about looking at them. The, that was really, I mean, it's, it sounds awful that I knew there were all these terrible pieces of the story, but I didn't want to read about my own bar mitzvah in my journal because it was so humiliating. Uh -huh. And so having, discovering that I wrote things down at the time, not knowing what they meant, was strange. 
mysterious. Let's, let's press on that a little bit more then. Is there anything about your relationship to Michael growing up that kind of um, you understood better after having this broader context and understanding his life a little bit more in a way that maybe you didn't when the two of you were growing up together? Uh, yeah, because I, I envied him some of the things that probably were not so helpful to him in the end. First of all, I envied his ability to just remember whatever he looked at. And I envied uh, his ability to do his homework on the way to class. Um, and I envied his supreme arrogance because I was, my father's parents had been killed in the Holocaust. My whole family had a different, entirely different energy. I had a sister, Michael had two brothers. His father was also a professor, but had grown up in Brooklyn and wore a leather bomber jacket and studied economics. And my dad would literally start walking backwards when Michael's father started walking towards him and they were just always like waltzing across the street. Um, and I envied him that too. I loved this, the energy of his house, even though it had a kind of chaos and, and, and almost, not violence, but there was a sort of an energy that I, I thought was cool. Uh, at the same time, I realized that I had been competing with him long after he was, at, without realizing how ill he was. Uh, and, and that was a mild mortification, you know. He was always the hare to my tortoise, and I always thought, well, the, whore, the hare is just taking a nap. Here's, but the hare was not taking a nap. The hare was... There was a lot more going on. There was a lot more going on. And indeed, some of the things, I can't parse it because we were just in high school, but you know, we were, we were beaten up together. I was beaten up. There was this big ga gang of kids. Michael got away. I always thought of it as his running away, but it seemed also like his street smarts. He'd broken free. I was just not even noticing what was going on. But also, there's a way in which many of these occasions, which we never talked about, I think were also aspects of his illness in certain ways that I only began to think about long after the fact. I had children when I started writing. When I started writing the book, I was as old as, I was older than our parents were. And so it was as if I could have been the parent of the kids I was writing about. And my own daughter, when I started writing, who was nine or 10, had a very close friend. And there she was, spending all this time with someone. And you just see how small she looks from above. But I knew how large it would all remain to her as a touchstone element. And so those things were very, and how f afraid I was when Michael became sick. and. And how, as I say in the introduction, it was my turn to run. I didn't know, I had no idea what it meant to be ill, uh, to be ill that way. And I grew up in a world also, as we live in now, where mental illness is a gigantic, almost fungible phrase that's used for everything that you could find in the diagnostic and statistical manual used by psychiatrists, which is, you know, claustrophobia, triskaidekaphobia, arachnophobia, and schizophrenia. And it's undifferentiated. And so it's very hard to know what it means. Um, and sometimes, in fact, because they built these community mental health centers, even the word mental health is now used to mean mental illness. And mental illness was used to mean a kind of general Freudian everyday psychopathology, which meant you could treat everybody, the one group of people not treated, with the really, really sick people. Mm -hmm. And realizing that as well was a, was a, a, a shock for me. And, and I'm still getting over it in a way. Thank you so much.